we're going to take a little bit of a detour tonight, okay? It's actually something I had on my mind when we covered Samson uh, three weeks ago, and it certainly applies to issues that uh, we've seen all throughout the book of Judges. So what I want to ask you to do tonight is find Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, and I want to talk to you about getting victory over temptation. This was a huge issue with Samson, and uh, really with Israel uh, in the book of Judges because they were not living according to God's word. They were going according to their feelings and what they felt tempted to do. They were just going right along with that. And so I, I thought about dealing with this in the lesson immediately following Samson is actually what I entertained doing and maybe should have. But uh, before we move out of the book, I do want to cover this. It says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you their authority, uh, all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Folks, this is certainly a, a topic that applies to each and every one of us, not just men like Samson, but each and every one of us. Now, something we saw about Samson, he was governed so much by his eyes, what he saw and what appealed to him. That seems to be what drove Samson much of the time. And unfortunately, people are just like that today, aren't they? We could say about America in 2020, everybody is doing what is right in their own eyes and what appeals to their eyes and what looks good to them. You know, I'm not even sure people today think that much about resisting temptation. You look around and it just seems like people openly indulge in sin, temptation and sin, and they're proud of it. And they encourage others to do the same. We're tempted by our enemy, Satan. Paul says in Ephesians 6, put on the full armor of God 
so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. That's Ephesians 6, 11. And then in verse 12, Paul goes on to say, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. We are also tempted by our fallen nature to lust for things that we don't have, but that we want. This is what James speaks of in James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. James says, but each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So what Satan do? Satan works on our fallen nature to try to entice us to sin against God, to disobey God. And notice what James says, though. James says we are responsible. Satan may tempt us, he may entice us, but the choice to give in or not, the choice to sin is ours. What did Flip Wilson used to say? You remember? The devil made me do it. Is that true? That's not true. Again, he entices, but he can't make you do it. Now, I want you to notice here, just think with me. I know we've, we've not obviously not been reading through Luke, uh, but it's tied very closely to chapter 3. What was, what was recorded in chapter 3 right before this passage? The baptism of Jesus, right? The baptism. And God's voice was heard from heaven. And what did God say? This is my beloved son and whom I'm well pleased. Certainly a high point. It signified the beginning of the public ministry of Jesus. Well, right on the heels of that high point, what comes? Temptation. Is there a lesson in that? I think so. Oftentimes, right after a high point, Satan attacks. Think again, go back to the book of Judges. Right after a victory, say, take Samson again. I know I've camped out on him a lot, but right after a high point, what would happen? He would turn around and I guess overconfident or whatever, and he would succumb to temptation. You know, I've noticed that in the lives of Christians today. Sometimes in new Christians. They'll come to the Lord, they'll get saved, they're all excited, and then they come back to you a week or two later, say, Pastor, I didn't, I didn't realize this was so hard. I, I've had temptation and struggles this week like I've never had in my whole life. Scott, I was reading Oswald Chambers last night, and it just ties in perfectly to what he said as far as our Christian growth goes. Mm. We sit up on the mountaintop, having a mountaintop experience. What is the first thing we want to do? We want to stay there, right? Right. And bask in the glow and the warmth and all that good stuff. 
But our Christian growth happens mostly in the valley. And that's where you have to be prepared. Exactly. And exactly that's where the test and trials and temptations. And everybody else in here. We're almost like the nation of Israel. We have that up and down roller coaster experience with God. Yep. We sure do. It makes me think of when, as a younger mother with kids at home, Uh you go away on a weekend retreat with godly women. And you get so built up, you know. And the kids are the same, and the husband. (laughs) Joe, is she talking about you? Now, what do you notice right away at the beginning of chapter 4? Does anything stand out in in verse 1? Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. He was full of the Spirit. And what else does verse 1 say there? Might be a little surprising to some. He was led of the Spirit into the wilderness. Did God do the tempting? No. Why not? God doesn't tempt. Again, James 1. God doesn't tempt. God is not tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. You say, well, why would God lead Jesus into the wilderness? He had a purpose in it, didn't he? I think we could talk about several things. I believe it was to establish right off that Jesus would be victorious over the devil. I think God was showing the the devil, your days of having your way with man are over. My son is going to beat you on your own turf. Now there's some parallels too with what's going on with Jesus here with Israel, right? What what do the birth narratives say about Jesus when God took him down into Egypt? Why was that? In fulfillment of prophecy, what did he say? Because I called my son out of Egypt. There's there's parallels between what God is showing, the contrast between Israel in the Old Testament and Jesus. They went out into the wilderness and they were tempted and they succumbed to the temptation. They failed. And so for 40 years, they want, it was a short journey to the promised land. They could have been there in just, just a very short period of time. But because of what they did, God left them in the wilderness wondering. He sends Jesus What's the New Testament say about Jesus? John 15, 1, for example. Who's Je- Jesus is the new Israel. Jesus says, I am the true vine. Who was the vine in the Old Testament? Israel and the Psalms and the prophets. Israel's the vine. Jesus says, I'm the true vine. I'm the true Israel. God. Israel corporately Nation failed. But Jesus 
is going to succeed in the wilderness. Where Israel failed, he will not fail. So there's some interesting parallels here between Jesus, the new Israel, and all those who are in Christ, and what happened to Israel in the Old Testament. Uh, I think secondly we could say it's to identify with us, the temptation narratives, to identify with us, to, to have Jesus identify with us. What's Hebrews 2 say? In verses 17 and 18, therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that in that which he has suffered, he's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. The writer of Hebrews goes on in chapter 4, verse 15, to say, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. So what's that mean? When you're tempted, when I'm tempted, what can we do? We can go to the Lord in prayer, and we can know that we are approaching a Savior who understands what it's like to be tempted. He's not aloof from us. Because He came in the flesh to identify with us, we can know that we approach a sympathetic high priest who's willing and able to help us and strengthen us. Well, I think a third reason for the temptation narrative, it was also to show us how to deal with temptation. Now, let me say something here. I, I, I know without a doubt because of who Jesus was and is, the Son of God and God the Son, he could have obliterated Satan on the spot. You know? Satan's a created being. Paul tells us in Colossians 1, 15 and following that it was actually through, when you read Genesis 1, God creating all things, it was actually through the agency of the Son that God created all things. So Jesus created Satan and the other angels, completely sovereign over him. He could have wiped the devil out in a moment. But could you or I ever relate to that? Had he dealt with temptation that way? Could you or I relate to that? No. Why? You're not God, and I'm not. And so in his humanity, he went through this experience and used means available to us and defeated temptation in a way that I can and you can. Folks, God wants us victorious over the devil. Satan comes along, he promises great things to us. People oftentimes listen to him. They end up destroying their lives. They end up in bondage to the devil. God doesn't want that. 
But if we're going to experience the Christian life as God wants us to experience it, we're going to have to know how to deal with evil, with temptation, with sin. And that's why in Ephesians 6, again, referencing that in that armor of God passage, God says we've got to put on the armor that we might be able to stand in the evil day. God wants us standing. Now, folks, one more thing before we get into this text. Don't underestimate how important this passage is. Because again, God's establishing right up front his, the authority of his son and his son's power and victory over the evil one. Now, first of all, if you take your notes tonight, things to realize about temptation. And the first thing is something we pointed out when we were talking about Samson. It's not a sin to be tempted. How do we know that? Because Jesus was tempted. And he's sinless. It's only a sin to give in to the temptation. Sometimes people beat up themselves and say, you know, if I was a better Christian, if I was more mature, uh, I wouldn't have faced temptation. Jesus was perfect. And he faced temptation. People used to say you, you can't stop the birds from flying overhead, but you can prevent them from building a nest in your hair. We mentioned that a couple of weeks ago. Well, something other that we could say about that, your temptation is not strange as though you're the only one. It is common. What's Paul say in 1 Corinthians 10, 13? No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man, and God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Now, temptation falls, I think, under categories listed in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. John says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. If you think about it, every temptation you face fits into one of those three categories. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life. The devil is really no more creative than that, but he doesn't need to be because he's having a pretty good deal of success with humanity. A third thing we can say about it, God provides a way of escape. Not only, not only is it strange as if you're the only one facing something like that, but God actually provides a way of escape. I reference 1 Corinthians 10, 13 again. 
where what Paul says, no temptation is overtaking you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also. And then lastly about this, let me say that you never outgrow temptation. This side of heaven, there's never going to be a time that you and I can let our guard down against the evil one. Later on in our passage tonight, what's verse 13 say? When the devil had finished every temptation, what did he do? He departed for what? A more opportune time. <clears throat> He was looking, looking down the road. Okay, he beat me this time. Jesus beat me. I'll leave him now, but I'm looking for a more opportune time. The devil's always looking for an opportune time with you and me. Back again to Ephesians 6, where Paul speaks of putting on the armor of God. He says that you might be able to resist in the evil day. What Paul is saying there, there's going to be times, there's going to be times in your life, an evil day, an opportune time for Satan. And so you need to put on the full armor of God so you can be prepared for that evil day. Some days are going to be worse than others when it comes to facing temptation. Satan's always looking for your weakness and my weakness. Secondly tonight, I want you to see how we are tempted. Look at, temp write down temptation number one. What, what was temptation number one? Essentially, it was this. Live according to the physical dimension only. If you're the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Where had Jesus been? In the wilderness? Fasting. Satisfy your appetite. Satisfy your hunger. Do so in the easiest, quickest way. Just indulge yourself. And incidentally, that's how a secular society is living today. The devil would have all of us live like practical atheists. He'd have us live like there's no God in heaven above, even if you confess you believe in God. What was Jesus' answer? Man shall not live by bread alone. Think about that. Man is created for fellowship with God. You're a spiritual being. You're not just flesh. That's how the animals are. What, what's Genesis say about man after God had created all the beasts of the field, birds and fish? When God created man, what did he breathe into man? Breath of life and man became a living soul. There's another dimension to man over the animal kingdom. Animals are physical, physical appetites and just instinct. 
That's what drives them. But man is not that way. Man is to live under the lordship of Jesus Christ and in communion with God. We're to feast on him. That's where real meaning and purpose and life comes from. The material things of this world alone can never satisfy you and me. Now, the Bible is not saying that the physical dimension is not important. It is important. God gave you a body. We live in a real world. But it's just not primary. Too many people, though, wake up and go about their day and they live as though the physical is all there is to life. And so Satan tempts people to live just according to their physical appetites. The lust of the flesh. Money, food, sex, materialism, all of those things we could say fall under the physical. And all of those things have their proper place in God's design but they don't define the essence of what our life is all about. If you and I factor God out of our everyday lives, then we have succumbed to this first temptation to live only to satisfy physical appetites. Well, Temptation number two, for lack of a better way of putting it, let me just say, go for the gusto. Go for the gusto. Uh, the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. The temptation for power and authority. Satan was basically saying to Jesus, I'll give it to you now. Satan knew that Jesus had come to establish a kingdom, his kingdom, the kingdom of God. He was saying, just look at the world and I'll give it to you right now. Now, he didn't have the authority to do so, but that's what he was promising. He was promising, I'll give it to you now without the pain of the cross. Just worship me, Jesus, and it's all yours. Everything you see, you, you can take it right now. You can have it. The lust of the eyes. It's the lure of the world. The lure of power, prestige, authority, and getting it the easy way. Satan saying, take the shortcut. Go ahead. Take what's rightfully yours. Do it your way. Do it now. Don't follow God's way of the cross. Do it now. You think people live according to that kind of lie today? Sure, people lie, cheat, steal, take do whatever they want to do to get what they want right now. That's a temptation the devil hurls at people. We live in an instant society, don't we? 
instant potatoes, drive-through, microwaves. Everybody wants everything right now. But folks, listen. Talking about you and me, not, not just not talking about Jesus right now. I'm applying this to you and me. God wants to develop your to take a lifetime to develop your character. God's not in a hurry. It's a lifetime work. But everybody wants everything right now. In fact, they want it yesterday. They want everything the world has to offer to them right now, however they've got to get it. It has to do with this information, wanting information right now, too. Oh, yeah. And that's, that's what they're trying to get through the Twitters and all that stuff. Sure. The, the instantaneous responses to everything instead of thinking things through. And looking at it from another perspective or another point of view. Yep. They want it right. They want something to go with right now. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll even tell young couples in premarital counseling, you know, when we talk about finances, because what will young couples do? They want to make a lateral move out of mom and dad's house. Mom and dad have been building wealth for 40 years. Young couples, we want it all now. It doesn't work that way. But what will they do? They'll, they'll put themselves in a terrible predicament by getting everything right now on credit, and then they can't pay their bills. Again, we, we're, we're a right now society. I want everything right now. Look at Jesus' answer to that. It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Both of these times already when Jesus says it is written, in, in the Greek, perfect tense, what's perfect tense mean? It is written, a past action with continuing application or results. It stands written, God's written it. And this is to go on in your life the way God has said it. You're to do it God's way. He's written it. And, and you can't say, okay, I'll, I'll do it for a little time here. That's it. You know, I've done enough of that. No, it stands written. It's been written. And it's ongoing application of that in your life. Worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. Don't do things Satan's way. To do things Satan's way is to worship and serve him. Sure, Satan, Satan has a certain amount of power to offer, but do you want it his way? Do you want anything his way? No. God's way is sometimes painful and costly and slow, but it's worth it. There's no crown without a cross. Satan's way may be easier for now. It may seem like a shortcut, but there's danger in it. Temptation number three, put God to the test. 
The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. This was a temptation to force God's hand. It's the temptation to presume upon God's loving care, regardless of how foolish you might be in, in doing so, in presuming upon God. Satan was essentially saying this will be a quick way to show off who you are. By the way, Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that from the pinnacle of the temple. Now, sometimes it seems like Josephus can exaggerate things a bit maybe, but from the tip, from the top, the pinnacle of the temple down to the base of the Kidron Valley. Remember, the temple in Jerusalem built up on mount anyway so you go outside the walls of the city and there's a, there's a steep drop he says it's 450 feet down wow sometimes people were thrown off to their deaths on one occasion in Jewish history there was a false messiah a man claiming to be a messiah who was crazy he was a bit crazy because he threw himself off the pinnacle of the temple thinking he would be saved and then everybody would see that and follow him. Well, guess what? He went to splat and they had to get him up with a spatula. <laughs> but Satan is saying, Jesus, you throw yourself off. You're God's son indeed. He's not going to let you go splat. He'll send his angels right down and they'll carry you safely to the ground and everybody's going to see this and everybody's going to know who you are. After all, Malachi the prophet had said in Malachi 3.1, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger and he'll clear the way before me and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Satan's tempting Jesus. That, you, you make a grand entrance here. You can suddenly come to your temple. That's not the application Malachi had in mind. But hey, you, you come to your temple suddenly. That way, when people see all this and see how God saves you, they'll know who you are. They'll follow you. So go ahead. Force God's hand on the issue. The boastful pride of life. You are the Messiah. So go ahead and put God to the test in this. Make him save you. What was Jesus' answer? Don't put God to the test. Don't force God's hand on things. You know, Satan tempts people all the time saying, go ahead, you're God's child. He's going to look after you. After all, you know, that, that's faith, isn't it? That's faith. Well, some things, forcing God's hand is not faith. That's testing God. And that's wrong to test God. Doing foolish things, disobedient things, and saying, I'm his child. He's going to look after me anyway. Well, what I want you to see tonight, three ways to handle temptation. 
What can we learn from the life of Jesus here? Well, first of all, before we get to the obvious about what he did with God's word, what do we see in verse 1 about Jesus? He was filled with the Spirit. How are you and I to be filled with the Spirit? After all, Ephesians 5.18 and following says, Be ye being filled with the Spirit. The child of God, upon their conversion, is baptized in the Spirit. It's not a second touch comes later. You're baptized, you're sealed with the Spirit from the moment of your salvation. Ephesians 1.13, you're sealed with God's Spirit. That's His seal of ownership on you, His Spirit. That doesn't mean everybody's filled with the Spirit. We're sealed with the Spirit. challenge is, be filled with the Spirit. How do we do that? Keep the same attitude that you had when you first got saved and repent. Uh, Repentance? Forgiveness and then if you're not clean, God can't fill you up. Repentance, confession, as much as you know how, dealing with sin and rebellion in your life, being surrendered to God, being yielded to Him in all things. Right? That's certainly... Being transformed by the renewing of your mind. Absolutely. It with the Word, I think, too. Yes. Having the mind of Christ um, through the Word. Giving you a perspective of looking at things from God's view instead of your own world of view, I guess. Absolutely. Absolutely. And how will being spirit-filled help us? Because as, even as Paul says in Romans 8, when we're weak and we don't even know what to pray, the Spirit will help us. Be, be full of the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. It's a command in Ephesians 5. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. Holy living, surrendered living, yielded living. And God's Spirit will help us. Give us strength. And He will intercede for us. By supplication, asking. Asking God for His help. Asking God for His Spirit. Asking God for strength and victory. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, what did Jesus say? Watch and pray, lest you what? Enter into temptation. The disciples failed. They slept instead of praying. And what happened to them? All of them ran when Jesus was arrested and Peter denied the Lord. So be spirit-filled, then ask by supplication. And then a big one we see here, handling temptation. By Scripture. What did Jesus use to defeat the devil? He used the Word of God. The devil would misquote the Word of God. He would misapply it. But Jesus would use it in its proper context and its proper way. 
How was he able to do that? Well, he's the author of it, but he knows it. He knows the Word of God. Folks, you and I have the capability because God has given us His Word to know it. To know it. And because Jesus knew it, now I want to be very careful. I don't want to use this contrast and comparison the way charismatics do. And you make too much of this too. But the, the two words, logos and rhema, as applied to the word of God. Essentially, they're synonymous words, but there is some distinction. Logos, God's word, the revelation of his word, and what is a rhema? A rhema is a specific instruction or application of that word. So by knowing God's word overall, his, the logos, then when something comes along that applies to a specific area, you can say, oh yeah, Psalm 32 addresses that. Romans 6 addresses that. Romans 8, James 1, James 2, Revelation 5. You know, by knowing God's word over all, then when Satan hits you with the temptation in a certain area, you know scripture, you know the rhema, the specific application of God's word that applies to that situation. You understand what I'm saying? And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. He is, he is using a specific application. Satan's misusing it, and Jesus is quoting Scripture properly, and he's using a particular Scripture to combat what Satan has just hurled at him. But again, my point, how are you going to do that and how am I going to do that if we don't even know what God's Word is? We need to know the Scripture. Folks, that's not just something that preachers say, knowing the Scripture. There's strength and wisdom in that, in knowing God's Word. So when you and I get in the midst of a trial of temptation, we will know what God says about it. And then too, if somebody at work or somebody in your family says something about that situation and it's totally the world's way of thinking, totally wrong way to view something, if you know the Word of God, you can say, oh, no, 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 no. That's not what Scripture says about that. Everybody else might be going along with what they're saying. And you say, no, 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 no. That's not what Scripture teaches us about that subject matter. But again, we've got to know His Word. Don't wait until you're in a crisis. 
Not, don't wait until the devil's got you in his grasp before you say, you know what, maybe, maybe I need to try to find out something about that. Know the script. The, the benefit of knowing the Word of God in your life, in your daily quiet time, your daily devotion, reading through the Scripture, know it. So that when you get in those situations, you know what to do and you know how to think. The renewing of your mind. What Jesus say? You'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. If you respond to temptation Satan's way and sin, where, where does sin take you? Into bondage. Responding to temptation God's way and standing strong against it leads you into what? Freedom. Satan's way, bondage. God's way, freedom. So again, be ye being filled with the Spirit, Spirit-filled, asking, supplication, and by knowing Scripture. Again, Jesus used those means of defeating Satan in the wilderness. And I can relate to that, and you can relate to that. He didn't just zap Satan because then I'd say, well, I can't do that. I can't deal with the devil the way the Son of God does. He dealt with the devil in a way that I can relate to and you can relate to. <clears throat> Are you dealing with the temptation right now? Are you simply listening to people around you who may not care one iota about the Lord? You know, that's another way to deal with temptation, right? Christian fellowship instead of just fellowship in the world. Who are you listening to? Scripture, I hope. God through the Scripture but also through godly counsel. Are you dealing with something right now in your life that you need to get into the Word and find out what God says? Seek out godly counsel. People that you trust have an authentic, dynamic walk with the Lord. If you have failed in temptation and succumbed to the evil one in a particular way, confess it, repent of it. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But you need to do an about face too. Repent of it. Confession is not saying, Lord, I'm sorry, and then just going right back to it. Whether it was Samson, whether it was the Israelites in general in the book of Judges, 
had they only gone by God's revelation, they didn't have as much of it as you and I have today, but they had a portion of it, the foundational part of it, and they chose to go their own way and do what felt right to them, what was attractive to their eyes, instead of going back and saying, what does God say? What does God say? Because they handled temptation the way they did, gave into it and sinned, look at the mess they got into in their lives and in their nation because they wouldn't listen to God. You could say in a very real way, the children of Israel in the book of Judges became the devil's plaything. He had his way with them. And again, what happened? Bondage. Oppression. And I may be talking to somebody in here tonight who's not handling temptation God's way. And you're giving in and sinning. And you've ended in bondage and oppression. I would like to know how you would recommend that we as Christians deal with some of the lies and stuff we hear without feeling almost hatred. That, that has been really a problem for me that I just have to turn the TV off. Sure. I think that's a ditto from everybody. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm willing to confess it. <laughs> sure, you are, absolutely. But that, that, then I feel guilty because God created them too. Sure. Well, pray for them. So many people are just blind. You know, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And you know where we have failed is the church in winning people to the Lord. That's right. Mm -hmm. And um, anyway, we've not been assaulted and light we should be. But we, we do need to realize that mankind at large is under the bondage of the evil one. And I think if we can have that sense of pity for them, that they're lost, uh, and we pray for them, that helps us to understand that, you know, we don't take it personally, is what I'm trying to say. It's, it's even difficult to pray for them. Sure. Sure. Rick? As the scripture talks about the be angry and sin not. Right. And then difference... Elaborate on the difference between righteous indignation sure. and uh, the, you call it anger, right? Yeah. 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 Elaborate on that for us. Be um, angry and sin not. <laughs> <laughs> Be angry at what God makes God angry. And that's righteous indignation. That's righteous indignation. Yeah. Without getting in the mud yourself. What does James say here? The anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. 
uh, I think we'll all agree on the fact that uh, our time here on earth is a testing time. Absolutely. It's a proving ground, so to speak. And many years ago, I was listening to Adrian Rogers on the radio. And uh, this was the first time I ever came upon what we've touched on tonight. That uh, Satan is God's Satan. He is on a leash. And you have to realize he was created so that God could display his love for us, his instruction for us, all kinds of things. But without that, see, we have no appreciation for it. It's not called earning your way to heaven. What it is is learning things and how to apply them. And like most things that we learn, we step upon each lesson we learned as we move higher. And I, I just thought of that for I don't know how many miles going down the road after I heard that. You know? But you're right. I mean, Satan, you look at the book of Job. Yeah. Satan could only do to Job what God allowed. God set a boundary on what Satan could and could not do with Job. And he meant that in an encouraging way. Sure. Not that, you know, you don't take Satan seriously. Right. You respect that. But the thing is, there are limits to his power. Sure. And God will, just like the scripture says, will provide a way out. Too many people have a view, too many even professing Christians have a view of dualism. We do not believe in dualism. Dualism is you have two sovereign powers in the universe, one for good and one for evil, and they're battling out. We don't have two sovereign powers. You only have one sovereign. God. Satan's, a, as you've indicated, is a created being. And here again, to use your word, or what Adrian Rogers would say, Satan's on a leash. God's got him on a leash. That's right. Pastor, I'm beginning. That's going to be quick, isn't it? I mean, it's not going to last no time, is it? It doesn't read that way. It doesn't read that it's going to be long. It reads that it's going to be quick. You know, sometimes when we see something in the, in the Bible, it appears either long and drawn out, it may have happened quick. Sometimes when it appears that something takes a long time, it happened quick. It's, if it reads like it was quick, it maybe took a long time. Yeah. But certainly the Armageddon passages read like it's a pretty quick thing. Yeah. Now, I would assume that the army's gathering is not. That takes time, you know, days, weeks, months. But when God unleashes his wrath and his power, it certainly reads like it's a quick, almost an instantaneous victory. And look at the participants today as they amass their power and as they get ready for that. What are we talking about? Persia, Iran, the Soviet Union, Israel. 
they're all here and now, and we're seeing them every day. And that's why I don't get fooled. Not that I, I don't appreciate what's going on in the Middle East now, where Israel is making agreements with what, two, or is it now three nations that they actually have relations with? And I said, wow, that's great. But I've read the book all the way to the end, so you know, <laughs> you, you, you kind of get yourself thinking, well, what's going on here? Again, Satan's on a leash, even that, what's happening in the nations. Who's sovereign? God is. God's orchestrating human history. History is his story. 